All right, welcome to the pod, the very first episode to be us. We're almost there. We almost did it. It's been uh, a long time coming, a long time coming. Yeah, we've teased it and teased it again and teased it yet again. Uh, But as they say, good things come to those who wait. Yeah, you know, it's all about showmanship. You got to leave them wanting more. But but no more teasing. We are here. This is the first episode. Uh, This is not a trick. This is not another teaser. Um, So uh, welcome to everyone listening. Welcome to the Good Game Podcast. Uh, Tobias and I are really excited uh, to be starting off on this project. We, um, like we just said, we've been working on it for a long time. Uh, But for those of us who maybe don't, Uh, know us and haven't come across us either in person or on social media um you know we'll take a second just to introduce you know kind of who we are and uh you know how we got into this uh so uh, tobias tell everybody about you yeah so um i teach i'm a norwegian high school teacher uh in uh, high school in bergen no on the west coast of norway and i'm also uh doing a phd on the university in bergen on um video games and dialogical teaching and I got into um, community by, I guess, after the first time, first and only time, I went to the GLS conference in, in mm-hmm. Madison, Wisconsin. And as you always do, you know, when you go to conferences and meet people of the like uh, same spirit, same, like cut from the same tree, so to speak. Kindred, uh, kindred spirits. Kindred spirits. That's once my my English idioms are failing me. <laughs> um, yeah, and it's uh, what just happened. Like as like a what you call it chain of dominoes in a way. I guess it was kind of yeah. inevitable. I guess it was um, fate. It was fate. It was def- definitely was fate. Um, so yeah, that's that's yeah, how it happened. Did we ever come down and figure out if um, you and I had met at that first GLS? I don't think we did know. I think uh, we met not until uh, we came to. We met in Boston. Because I know, because I, I, there were other Norwegians there, but they must have been they must have been different people. Mm. Um, yeah. So was uh, Boston really the first time we met? Hmm. I, I think so. And was, yeah. Anyway, so that, that that certainly was when when this got off the ground for sure. Yeah. So yeah. So what about what about you, John? Who are you? <laughs> so, uh, who am I? I uh, my name is John Fallon. I'm uh, an English teacher in Connecticut, um, and I have been using game-based learning for for most of my. Geez, I'm going into my eleventh year. Uh, most of my career, um, I got into it, I guess, because I, you know, I had grown up always playing games. And, you know, and as I entered the classroom, it was already pretty clear to me, like how much intellectual sweat I had put into like learning and mastering all different types of games, uh, you know, my entire life. And so when I was looking at the classroom and I also had a few very influential teachers who, who used um, games of their own creations that were very impactful. And I, I look back at those as very transformational experiences that really made me i think see a lot of potential for learning uh in that way and then so i kind of just randomly experimented it got into some you know weird alternate reality game stuff which will be discussed you know on a, on a later episode uh in more depth and uh met people like paul darvasi who is going to be uh, one of the first guests you're going to hear from uh in a few minutes and uh it just yeah like you said it was it was a chain dominoes all just kind of kind of led from there and 
you know, I, I've made games of my own creation. I use games as text, which is going to be a big topic uh, of uh, today's uh, today's episode. Um, but yeah, that's how I that's mm. how I landed here. Yeah, I think I think I actually forgot to mention. I got to thinking on what you were talking about. I think I forgot to mention uh, what I teach and how I started using games. So I teach uh, Norwegian and history and religious studies, and uh, much like you, John, actually, I just started. Um, I also use the games mostly in my in my Norwegian class, just for as an object for literary literary analysis, but also for like inspiration for the students writing their own texts. Uh, but also, and this is like my main party trick, I guess you could call it, uh, <laughs> The Walking Dead and ethics. Yeah, that's that's the one that got me. Uh, that yeah. got you on my radar for sure. Mm. So uh, how, which... how, how did so most people would say you know zombies and ethics it's kind of <laughs> kind of opposites but as someone who has played the walking dead i it's it's such a natural fit but, but how how did you get to use you know a zombie game to, to teach ethics you know um if the approach to i have to using games in my classroom in general is basically to quite literally jump into it and then then later <laughs> see if my parachute works so to speak I think um, I think in the guests that we're gonna have on this podcast, I bet that's gonna be a pretty common theme. I think so, yeah, because you you can't like my, his name eludes me, but there was some uh, I think it was an American officer who said that no plant survives counter uh, like first contact with the enemy or something. Yes, yeah, so, uh, it was uh, yeah, it was a famous general. I can't remember no. if it was Schwarzkopf in the Gulf War mm. or uh, a World War II general. But yeah, it's that's like, definitely true. Yeah, so uh, of course like. War and warfare not being the connotations that I want to draw upon. There's like the core principle is the same. I think that you can plan and plan and plan your your teaching as much as you want, but then when you execute the plan, uh, many things can happen that you didn't plan for. So, but The Walking Dead uh, just came to me and once, well, like just before one summer holiday, when I was playing it by myself, and I just realized this would be really cool to use in the class where. The students have to learn how to base their arguments on like established moral philosophy, like mm. consequential ethics and Aristotelian ethics of virtue, uh, counter categorical imperative, and so on and so on. So the game, actually, it's since it works so well, and since many of my non-gaming colleagues have been able to use it mostly without any any major pains. It's, it seems like an idea I stumbled upon rather than some, some something I invented because it lends itself so well to this kind of, of teaching. No, yeah, um, I mean, it's it's the, for those who are not familiar with with the Walking Dead game uh, from from the unfortunately now defunct Telltale Games. There, there's a couple other Walking Dead games that are that are not the same thing. Uh, yeah, it's basically it's a series of moral choices that are mm. you know purposely amped up to 11 in their intensity and in their complexity of life and death situations in a zombie apocalypse. But I've, I found it, you know, an immensely powerful narrative. And, and when you have to yeah. make the choices, yeah, looking at it through the, the explicit ethical lens is, is a no brainer for sure. Yeah. And, and, the, and the dilemmas are, are actually, or, or perhaps unsurprisingly, very well designed in the sense that there are no like obvious solutions. Like if, if there were an obvious solution, solution no, it wouldn't be a dilemma. Yeah. But there, are, you can see it like for those of you who haven't played it, when you've played like one episode to its end, uh, you get this stat, you get this statistic over what other like what other place in the players in the world uh, have chosen, yeah. and you your choice is compared to those, and most of them are surprisingly many of them are 
about 50-50 with a margin of like five or six percent maybe. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's really I think that's really cool. Um, and it, it's probably even interesting to, to look at um, how you feel about your choices once you know that, because mm. there is sense of like there is kind of a weird sense of sometimes moral superiority when you know eighty percent of the people made the <laughs> same choice and you're like yeah we're we're right it yeah was, it was the quote unquote right decision and then when you know when you're one of the ten percent. You're like everyone else is crazy, so yeah. That's but that's a whole another yeah, yeah. moral conundrum to compare it to what other yeah. people think. It's um yeah for for those teachers anyone out there who um is interested in and in, you know simulating tough ethical decisions, uh, I would definitely check out The Walking Dead. Tobias, let's talk a little bit more about where our guests are gonna come from, and um and basically. Uh, most of our guests are people we know through a network of teachers that. Most of us met through conferences like the Games and Education Conference, uh, the former Games and Learning Society and Conference at the University of Wisconsin, um, Connected Learning, and places like that. And we grew over social media, Twitter, Facebook, uh, until we got to the point where um, you know there were quite a few of us when we began to kind of have this identity as, as people who wanted to really work together to spread the message of game-based learning. Um, and, and it's, it's a group of really passionate people like that. Very informal. There are no explicit qualifications, you know, mm. um, and, and Tobias and I found ourselves, you know, uh, in this network uh, of, uh, fascinating people. And we began to realize that there were, that we were growing so much that it was getting to the point where we didn't actually know all the great work that was being done. Um, so you and I were like, you know what? But first step is we should probably be telling each other what we're doing. Mm. And then also everyone else needs to hear about the great work that, that, the, that these teachers and other people are doing. Yeah. We crossed Dunbar's number, which is what 150 something uh, way, way like long ago. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah, think so, we, which is a good thing. I mean, yeah. But that also makes it difficult to like have your, get your bearings in a way on who's who and who's doing what. And, and Yeah. Yeah. So, so I assume if you're listening, you're probably, uh, you know, a teacher, uh, maybe someone who is in an education program uh, training to become a teacher, a parent, an administrator, um, or just a person who's interested in education uh, in some way or interested in games uh, in some way. Um, You know, this podcast is for you. This is uh, a podcast that we hope will uh, inspire people, connect people, and, and just kind of go down all the rabbit holes that are out there because, you know, as we said in our teaser, I would say almost every, I would say almost every school community probably is looking around in the world and saying like, okay, we don't have education figured out, uh, but we know it's not what we've done traditionally. Um, And, and as we'll talk about a lot, you know, games are not magic they're not a magic mm. bullet it's not like okay if everyone needs to, to to use games in their classroom and if they do education is fixed but it's uh definitely um you know something in your that mm. should be in, in, in your tool belt uh from for, for most teachers and some teachers yeah. like myself like like you like uh, uh many others that we know it could be a larger portion of what they do if they're really passionate about it, or it could just be one of many things that you, that you use. So hopefully you come away with, you know, something that, that you're excited uh, to use in your classroom. That's, that, that's, that's really what I hope people can get out of it. Uh, yeah. I don't know about you. 
Yeah, I totally agree, John. I mean, I mean, it's I use the tool metaphor. It's not really a metaphor. It's quite a literal, literal thing, actually. Uh, more like you said, more tools in your tool belt. I mean, it's very nice to have a screwdriver when it's like a screwdriver will like fit. Screwdriver will fit your your, your needs perfectly. Mm-hmm. But it's also for me, at least for me, uh, and this is a, like purely personal, I guess. I use games mostly to be to be honest because I think it's fun. <laughs> yeah. And and when I think my like trick is to, to make sure you enjoy your own teaching and if i enjoy my mm-hmm. own teaching then there's a like very high chance that my students will enjoy it also yeah this and that's really why i got into teaching is is especially english is english was probably always my favorite subject you know i became a literature major went to uh, grad school for literature degree as well but i would say there were a lot of english classes that i had that i did not enjoy Mm. Um, but I had a, a lot of English classes and English teachers that I loved and, and changed my life. And, and one of the things I took into it is like, I want to, I want to be that for as many te- uh, students as I can. Mm. Um, yeah. and, and, and if I'm not having fun, there's no way they're having fun. And if they're not having fun, they're probably completely tuned out and no one's learning anything. Mm. Yeah, same. My my like road to becoming a teacher is like uh, strewn with with images of of good role models. Hmm. That's a great. So, mm. so let's uh let's get into what we're talking about today because this is certainly a topic that's near and dear to both of us because it uh the guests are not only good friends of ours uh but uh are definitely in our wheelhouse um uh, you know as as uh, literature teachers of this type and that's about using games uh as text and it was it was really interesting uh just as we were getting uh queued up for this episode that there was an article on uh venture beat um that came out by uh, um, a guy called michael zim and um he actually comes from a, a classical b- uh, background of uh you know uh, studying you know ancient greece and and uh, latin and things like that and certainly as like a, a game-based learning teacher nerd uh you know a lot of the article was like yeah no doubt welcome to the club but um i think he does a great job of kind of laying out like a good basic um argument about why um you know video games should be considered art and he actually directly compares it uh, to literature uh, yeah the, the title of the article is video games are, are literature's new frontier mm. uh which which as we'll talk about you know may may even be the, the a slightly wrong lens for but uh, i think he, he makes a good point uh that's kind of close to his thesis when he says literature teases out the grayness of our world by putting their audience in situations that elude our moral intuitions urge to see black and white contours story-driven game video story-driven video games are accomplishing that same feat which sounds like the walking dead that we were just discussing Mm. um he cites uh uh the last of us um which uh its ending is is very morally ambiguous and and i agree Mm. is a good example i won't spoil it if anyone hasn't played it but it is good uh and he also looks at the more recent example of red dead redemption 2 so but this is like this is a discussion of video games and narrative is like obviously a huge discussion still you'd think it would be solved by now but still a discussion in 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 game studies and in in uh game in in, in, like in the industry and to for me also i sometimes struggle with 
talking to him, I not struggle with, but I, I think I find it interesting to discuss like what what are like the defining traits of a video game that is a narrative or it conveys a narrative and a game that doesn't. And what's the difference between actually, actually experiencing, experiencing a game as a narrative and just talking about what cool stuff happened to you in Fallout 4 or whatever. Yeah, but then, yeah, you're getting into, like, really weedy territory of, like, um, you know, what's the difference between, like, an emergent narrative? What What's, like, the value of the narrative that's going on in your head mm. versus, like, what's explicitly in the game? Yeah, um, and, and I've heard for, that. Which for, which for me, like, if you're boiling it down that much, you're basically saying, oh, there is narrative here. There's just a lot of different types. Yes. Yeah, that's, yeah. It's, I think it's a good idea to distinguish between, like what you said, emergent narrative and embedded narrative. Um, like the stuff that the game explicitly wants you to, story that explain game explicitly wants you to follow, and the thing that that the part the narrative that that uh, emerges or uh, gets created as a result, direct result of your actions. Yeah, because for me, and this is another quote from the Venture Beat article. You know, he says, if, you know, if literature challenged us to explore human behavior, relationships, morality, and the human condition more generally, which sounds exactly like my more traditional teaching of Lord of the Flies, for example, mm. uh, then, then video games have emerged in the modern era as a platform as powerful as television, cinema, and books. Because, yeah, it does the same thing. It's it's giving you explicit choices that, in many different cases of being like okay what what is the right thing and then you walk away mm. realizing okay maybe there isn't a right thing or you know it depends yeah and, it, and it, it's i mean i don't i don't i hope the discussion like in a way never ends because as long as it's ongoing it's fruitful it, of course it never ends mm. you know yeah. it's, you know people forget i say this all the time but like people forget that novels First of all, the name novel means new. It was seen mm. as like it was seen, they're called novel because it was new and disruptive. Yeah. And there were all kinds of critics and people who were saying that it wasn't art or that it was and it was dangerous. And yeah, it like, would you know, steal like, time from reading religious texts or. Yeah, it was like oh, you know, it's it it's too good at at, at like making you relate to fictional characters and it'll like drain your empathy, like you know. So we've. <laughs> We've seen we've we've been here before, but it's yeah. it's it's still interesting uh, no matter what. So uh, to get into this, um, our our uh, guests coming up are, are Paul Darvazi uh, and um, you take the Norwegian one, Alexander Husey. There you go, Husey, um, and uh, they are both phenomenal teachers who have gone uh, um, onto the the path of of using games as text like teach, teaching them the way we would uh teach a short story or a novel or a movie um in some of the ways that we've been discussing so uh these guys are great they are super nice uh if you're interested uh i highly recommend you check out their work um uh, and uh you know find them on social media and elsewhere um and and by all means uh you know tweet at us Get on the Facebook page. Uh, let us know what you guys thought about it, questions and stuff you have, um, and and we will go from there. But I'm uh, very excited to to introduce uh, Paul and Alexander. All 
All right, we are welcoming um, Paul Darvazi and Alexander Husoy uh, to the show. Paul Darvazi is an educator and researcher who keynotes, lectures, writes, and consults on the intersection of digital games, simulations, narrative, social justice, culture, and learning. His work has been featured in publications all over the world, like National Public Radio, the CBC in Canada, the Huffington Post, Polygon.com, Edutopia, Engadget, and more. Paul, welcome to the first episode of the podcast. Yay! Thanks, John. No problem. And joining him is Alexander Husoy. He is a Norwegian teacher and advisor on games and learning at a high school in Bergen, Norway. He is one of Scandinavia's leading voices on the educational use of video games, and he regularly does talks and workshops on game-based learning throughout Europe and the United States. Welcome to the show, Alex. Thank you so much. Super excited to be here with all of you guys tonight. Okay, so my question to both of you, um, and Paul, you can take this first if you like. How did you uh, find yourself using uh, games, particularly video games, in uh, your class? Um, uh, Great question. So I completed a master's at the University of British Columbia about 10 years ago. And uh, through the course of my master's, I started doing a lot of research into the use of video games because I played video games my whole life. And I was really uh, interested in seeing the potential that could be drawn from video games in the classroom. And at that time, it was it was particularly history games that were interesting me. So, of course, Civilization and Colonization, uh, a lesser known Sid Meier title. Um, and I was looking at the possibilities of using, using these to teach history. Um, and that started me down the path. And Alexander, what about you? Uh, yeah, civilization is actually civilization is actually where I got started as well. Uh, now about uh, now about six years ago at the school where I'm working, uh, the principal at the t- principal at the time came up with me with the question, "Hey, we have uh, we have a bunch of resources and we want some teachers to do something with some with some kind of video game. Do you have anything in mind?" And uh, and what that ended up with was a huge was a huge four week project that spanned English, social science, and Norwegian classes, where we're using the Civilization Four game really, really extensively. And then from there on, the ball's just been keeping rolling with uh, with new games and new approaches to using games in my classes. I think you just described the like the average uh, computer gaming teacher's uh, dream scenario, where you principal walks up with you with a bunch of money and say hey use this <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah that's so interesting i didn't know that, that that you were approached by your school um because a lot of the narratives of you know the people that we know who are using games you know it's usually kind of a, an insurgency that they start on their own and <laughs> the, the school later kind of um you know supports it so how did your administrator um Get that project to you. Where did where did that come from? Uh, why it ended in my hand um, in in my hands are actually a series of uh, uh, why it ended in my hands that is actually a series of coincidences. Now, uh, now, now, if you guys can remember back to a game called Word Feud that for a while was all the rage, uh, rage this like Scrabble like mobile game. Hmm. No, I don't remember that particular one, but I know the type. 
Uh, yeah, now, uh, now about four months before my principal approached me, I'd been suggesting to been suggesting to her, to her that we that we should do that we should do like a school wide tournament in Wordwood, which would be a a very 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 minor minor type of project to do. Uh, now my principal, who's who's not all that well versed in game versed in games, uh, immediately interpret this immediately interpreted this as this as some kind of a super duper super duper you duper huge endeavor which it by hmm. no means was not uh leading her to leading 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 her leading her to give me this this opportunity essentially say uh to give me this opportunity essentially saying uh saying hey we have this modest pile of money uh lying around here can you come up with come up with some kind of a uh, as some kind of a lesson unit that makes use of games in one way or another and uh that was pretty much exactly that was pretty much exactly my dream project so as a project so i so i jumped right on it and we and we spent uh spent uh, spent a lot of time and a lot of time and a lot of resources and resources in putting together a really solid unit of uh unit of civilization four now that being uh now that being said though i really really enjoy it really really enjoyed really really enjoyed that experience of using a massive game like a game like civilization four in my classroom uh this is a project that i'll probably never undertake again and this is also a project that i wouldn't recommend <laughs> most other teacher most other most most other teachers to attempt simply simply because simply because getting into a massive game like civilization 4 uh, civilization 4 demands such a significant time investment both from the teacher and from the student uh, and now if and now if the lesson ends up working the way you want it to work awesome however there's also uh, however there's also a, a lots of bits and pieces that you need fit together really well so that if a project like this that spans multiple subjects and multiple weeks fails which it very well might do then you've just ended up wasting uh, wasting a quite substantial amount of uh, school time and class time yeah, civilization is fairly late game stuff when it comes to like uh, teacher gamers so yeah good point yeah yeah, there's a lot of moving parts um, in those types of games, which can be hard to control. Um, so, uh, Paul, you are an English teacher, correct? Correct. So, even if uh, for our audience, you know, if they're listening to this podcast, they're probably at least curious about the use of games in class. But let's just ask the question, you know, why games? You know, isn't English class about books? Um, well, see, that's that. I'll, I'll disagree with that first point. Uh, the, the way that I conceive of English, to be honest with you, I think that even the name English class is a little bit outdated. I, I like to think that I teach communication. Um, and the, the focus is, of course, on traditional communication skills like reading, writing, um, speaking and listening. Those are those are the big four. Um, but there's also, uh, particularly in my region in Ontario, which is a province in Canada, um, there's a focus where we have to devote 25% of our English classes to media studies, which is essentially a form of media literacy. Um, and that definitely um, invites the possibility for having a game in my class because in reality, games are becoming a huge part of the media landscape that these adolescents are inhabiting. And for them to develop some literacy skills around uh, one of their key sort of uh, media resources, I think is crucial. Um, and there are not very many classes that are typically taught in high school that open the space to do thinking around uh, around games or video games. 
Um, so I actually think it's a much more natural fit uh, than you would initially suspect. However, I should add that that doesn't mean that any video game will fit an English class. I, 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 I tend to, to choose games that are very strong in narrative and, and that have a fairly low barrier to entry where you don't have to be a very skilled or experienced player in order to access the game. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Um, one of the things that I always say about English classes is that it's the most interdisciplinary subject uh, by its very nature. Um, so there's always a lot of curricular flexibility to get that in. I didn't know that you were required to do 25% uh, media studies. Is that is that the the influence of your, your, your favorite man from Toronto? It sure is, and so good of you to know. Yeah, um, uh, Marshall McLuhan, who is a, a Toronto person, born in, born in Manitoba, but, but spent most of his career in Toronto, he taught a series of people who became very influential in the development of curriculum in my region. One of them is a gentleman named Barry Duncan, uh, who was a disciple slash student of Marshall McLuhan's. And Marshall McLuhan is, of course, a, a very important thinker around media. Um, and as a result of that, he carried over McLuhan's mandate that the world would increasingly become absorbed by media and that students should start thinking about media um, because it was relevant to their lives. And as a result of that, um, he influenced uh, the Ministry of Education, which is our Department of Education at the, at the provincial level, to incorporate not just 25% media studies in every English class in high school, but also to create a dedicated media studies class, which is an optional class that you can take in grade 11, which I, in fact, teach. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. If you are uh, remembering the name Marshall McLuhan and you can't quite place it, it was probably from, you know, your communications 101 class. Marshall McLuhan's the the famous, the media is the message guy. Um, and Paul has uh, proselytized him for as long as I've known him and probably more. <laughs> uh, but he is a, a fascinating guy. He really did um, really did predict the future in a lot of ways, particularly around around media. So um paul and i would both recommend checking him out if you would like to know more about that mm. um but how about you alex what paul has talked about how it's uh it, how it's like being an english teacher in a country where english is uh the first language so how about t being an english teacher in norway is there anything any differences that would you would like to point out or any other points yeah well uh, much of my rationale for using for using narrative uh, games in English English class are very similar to uh, similar to the points the points that Paul already presented. Uh, now, John, you made the uh, John, you made the point uh, you made the point of the the point about isn't English uh, isn't English English a subject about books? Now, the way I see it, English isn't uh, isn't a subject about books. English is a subject about narratives, and whether uh, whether teachers are like us super interested and super invested and uh, super invested in gaming culture or for that matter if they're uh, matter if they're the complete opposite have no interest in games games whatsoever uh, whatsoever games are an increasingly important narrative medium of the time that we're living in and thereby is a medium that all teachers regardless of their personal tastes or distastes for the medium should be knowledgeable about and should be able to say something about and discuss and analyze because this is knowledge that we as teachers need to pass on to our students in the same way as that we need to pass on to our students in the same way that that we need to pass pass on knowledge uh, knowledge about drama about short stories about novels about any other 
literary genre that we uh, want to work with or that it's important that we expose our students to. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a, exactly what um, I've said frequently myself. And it really is, is, is one of the main reasons that we, we started this podcast is to help those who um, did not grow up playing video games um, or don't use it often or um, just feel uncomfortable with it uh, for a variety of reasons to be able to gain that knowledge and find an entrance place for it. Because you're right, it's, it is about story. It is about media of all types. Um, and, you know, we live in an interactive world, particularly with, you know, with the growth of the Internet and teaching those kind of uh, awarenesses and knowledge is, is exactly the kind of thing that teachers can and should do. So 100 percent agreement here. Um, so you two have both taught Gone Home mm-hmm. uh, and other similar games, just like you would a written text. Um, so when you're using a video game as a text um instead of the usual traditional ones like a a novel or a short story or a play what is the biggest difference uh, for you the teacher and what do you think is the biggest difference for the students uh do you want to take that and take first jab at that poll sure um i would say that one of the key differences i mean it really depends on the video game because they're all structured a little differently and their unique structures definitely uh, apply some pressure on the way that you would normally teach it. Um, for example, in, in the game that Alex and I delivered uh, in conjunction with each other, which is uh, Gone Home, the, the difference is that when you read a book as a class, you could tell the whole class, okay, everybody read to the end of chapter one and we'll discuss it next class. When you allow your students to enter a game and they have the freedom to move around where they want, then all of a sudden they all end up at different places and access material differently. Um, and your assessment strategies and your teaching strategies have to account for that. Now, playing Gone Home from beginning to end only takes about two and a half or three hours. So whatever happens after three hours, everybody's going to be on the same page. So you, you just have to adjust to allow them the flexibility to access the text in a way that is meaningful and uh, to them, uh, but also create structures in place that make them mindful of what they're doing and have them think about the various narrative qualities that they're encountering in the game. And before we move on, could, Paul, could you just give a little bit of background about uh, Gone Home, how you found it, and just generally a quick um, introduction to the game itself? Sure. Uh, Gone Home was uh, was uh, released in 2013, I think August of 2013, uh, and it was heralded as, as a pioneer in the genre because of a few things. It's a, it's a very profound story about uh, a family in turmoil, um, and, and the, the general you know, plot of the of the game is that you are a 19 year old girl, Katie Greenbrier, who's returned uh, from a year long backpacking adventure in Europe. And while she was gone, her family's inherited this giant dilapidated mansion, which, you know, she's never been to before, but this is where she arrives to return back to her family. So she she's on the front porch of this really big, creepy house and realizes that nobody is home. So she enters the house and for the next three hours, rifles through drawers and closets and the personal possessions of her family to try to piece together what has happened to her family in the year that she's been away and also to account for the missing family members. So it, it's, a, it's a little bit of a mystery. Um, it, it's very real uh, and, and, and it's, uh, it's, it's very unique in that it's, it's a game about exploration uh, and emotion. It's not about shooting or, or adventures or questing. It's got a very different feel to it. And it was celebrated because of its unique storytelling 
um, features, particularly finding items, personal items that reveal things about characters, but also for the emotional impact and character development, which would be at par uh, with a play or a novel. Uh, and if I could just add one thing to that, maybe the strongest ar the strongest argument for games like uh, games like Gone Home being excellent starting points for teachers who are curious to perhaps explore what can games add to my classroom. Gone Home is super duper accessible, super duper accessible, both to students and teachers who have hardly ever touched a game before because the gameplay is very intuitive. And the most important part about that is that there are no time constraints during any point during the game during the games so you have the time you have the time to explore both the content of the game but also you have the time to explore the game mechanics and okay so how do i go about navigating this game as well yeah that's a great point because one of the things i love about gone home is it does show how an interactive medium can teach you itself um, how to how to interact with it because to get through that first part the the locked door on the porch that that Paul mentioned you kind of have to go through all the the basic mechanics just to, to enter the game you have to read the note on the door you have to find the key pick it up pick up an object take it over interact with the door and which really is all the mechanics you need uh, to get through the whole the whole thing which is uh, it certainly makes it really accessible to mm. um, to people with uh, experience levels of all types. Yeah, mm. and also the, the 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 way that Paul and Alex used Gone Home uh, makes it, I think, more accessible to a wider array of teachers with different uh, gaming experience. Whereas, uh, let's say, if you if if the, the teaching a uh, teaching and the, and the unit was closely attached to like the game mechanics themselves, then you would have probably have to have more knowledge of the gaming part of this, this but, but whereas any English teacher can probably say something about uh, a gun home within a fairly short amount of time. Would you guys agree? Or uh, absolutely, the, uh, absolutely. The analogy between this kind, uh, uh, the analogy between this type of game and short stories, which English teachers obviously are very, very familiar with, uh, are quite easy to identify again even for those teachers who are uh, strangers to the gaming medium yeah that's a, that's a great point i often compare it to a short story and it, I, I usually my elevator pitch to other teachers or parents is you know it's an interactive short story um, mm. and they, they usually mm. nod their head and go oh that's interesting Mm. That, you touch upon a, a good point there, John, about um, when pitching the idea of games and learning to people that don't, don't necessarily have that much experience with games. It's, it's pro often a, always a good idea to play on what they know, like you said, uh, interactive short story and so on, because then so, they can they can they can relate to. Uh, it's, it doesn't become as as um, well strange to them, I guess. <laughs> yeah, there's you often find that in the analogies. Uh, so, uh, Paul, first, how did you set up um, your teaching of the game? You know, especially if we're, if we're imagining um, all of those familiar processes that we use with the traditional text, how mm -hmm. did you how did you approach it in the classroom? 
uh, with Gone Home. So I, I, I developed the curriculum around Gone Home under some pressure because I had uh, been in contact with who is now my doctoral supervisor, Jen Jensen, who wanted to run a study in my class while we were running Gone Home for the first time. And I felt the pressure that the eyes of these researchers were going to be on what I was doing. So I put a lot of work in creating a unit which I thought would be meaningful and, and, and really get the most out of the experience. So one of the things that I did, I'd already played Gone Home twice uh, from beginning to end before I started creating assessment. And then I had absolutely no clue what I was going to do with it. So I went through every single room with a fine tooth comb and took copious notes on all the items that I found. And, and, and so I absolutely reverse engineered the whole game in such a way that I knew every corner of the house. And through that process of becoming intimate with the house and its functions, a series of ideas came to me in terms of what I could have them look for and certain themes that emerged in the game. So I think what's important, it's not always possible because some games can be very long and time consuming and you may not have the luxury to go into such detail. But I think um, much like in, in, you know, when you're teaching a regular book, the answer to your curriculum is within the book, that the, the, the types of things that you want to focus on, often the skills that you want to develop, um, I feel should, should in some way speak to the narrative that you're using. And I, I tried my best to make the assessment and the unit that I developed around Gone Home um, uh, true to the game itself and the functions of the game, the themes of the game, and made adjustments where I would say uh, that reflect the fact that we're learning a game and not a book, to look at qualities that are unique to the, a game's way of telling stories, as Alex mentioned earlier, as, as an important addition to the narrative tradition um, that, that is very 21st century storytelling. And great. Alexander, what about you? Yeah. Uh, one thing that I could add to that is how are you organizing your classroom? How are you organizing your students as they're experiencing the game? Uh, now, for the most uh, now for the most part, when I'm working with short stories, I'll have my I'll have my students read uh, read the short story individually as their step one. So they'll read their short story and then they'll come back to class. We'll have group discussions or we'll have class discussions uh, discussions. Now, since to most students, using non-schoolish game, uh, schoolish schoolish games in a classroom context is a novel concept to the concept concept to them. In a in a way, you need to retrain your students to approach the game not uh, not uh, not in the same way as not in the same not in the same way as they'd approach a game that they're playing on their free time, right? Because because when you're playing a game recreationally, at least for many students students, the object is getting to the finish line as quickly as possible. Now, getting to the finish line as quickly as quickly as possible is uh, absolutely counterproductive to uh, counterproductive to working with a game like this like this, where you are looking at where you are looking for details to kind of unravel the story story that's going on so one one major difference between uh short stories in the form of game games and traditional short stories in the for, uh, stories in the form of text is that when they're experiencing uh, when they're experiencing the story when they're playing the game playing playing the game i want my students to play the game in pairs uh now uh, what's interesting uh, now? What's really interesting when I have when I have my students play this game in pairs is that that allows them uh, that allows them the opportunity space to process and digest the content that they're that they're experiencing while they are playing the game because much much of the much of the time when students are uh, much of the time when students are playing on their own they very quickly get into this 
uh, gamer mentality, where uh, gamer mentality, where their goal is, okay, now I need to try to, uh, and now I need to try to find the answer. I need to get to the end game state as quickly as possible, and if I do that, I win. But by having the students play playing in and playing in pairs, uh, there are all sorts of interesting positive interactions that come mm -hmm. from them processing both the game, their own thoughts about, about what they're experiencing in the game, and their back and forth interaction between students about their various analysis or thoughts of different aspects of the game. You know what's funny, Alex? I've worked with you for years and never realized in all of that time that your students were playing in pairs. No, that, that can't be right, Paul. I must have told you that several <laughs> I, times. Either, you know what? I've either forgotten, which is very possible in my old age, but uh, but for some reason, I, I, I've i always imagined that you were, because I play with singles. I, I've rarely played yeah. with pairs. And uh, and I I don't know why. I, I Either I've erased it from my memory or somehow it slipped through the cracks or, or something, but uh, that's really interesting. Hmm. Yeah, because that's a, my first thought was you were doing pairs because you were working uh, with English as a second language and they need the support. But that's fascinating because that's that's absolutely true in my experience using games to kind of have them self-regulate those um, competitive impulses, putting them uh, in pairs like that probably does a really great natural job. That's that's actually really interesting. Hmm. Um, I think the the lot, you know, one of the most fascinating things about this whole journey about, you know, implementing particularly Gone Home in my class is that um, Alex and I for, was it two or three years that we did it, Alex? Uh, we've done it three years altogether. Uh, yeah, three years. So, so for three years, we actually collaborated and had our students both in Canada and Norway play at the same time. Um, and we set up a secret Facebook group where they could communicate with each other, get to know each other. And it was a great sort of intercultural experience as well as a shared gameplay experience. But what 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 um, still to me is one of the greatest things uh, in, you know, possibly in my career are these magnificent projects that the students collaborated on at the end of the game where students in Canada would team up with students in Norway to create zines and podcasts and machinimas and the quality of work they produced was phenomenal. But, but more interestingly, here you have these two groups of students from two countries that speak two different languages and are on two very different time zones <laughs> that are, that are working, you know, across the big pond to deliver these absolutely beautiful final projects. And I think it's a, it's a really great statement on the possibilities for truly global education and the types of things that you can do when you leverage technology tools properly and not just use them for the sake of using them. Mm. You know, because that's that's an interesting topic uh, in and of, just in and of itself. The the way that you guys collaborated, uh, well, on a budget basically. Mm -hmm. uh, so, are, are there any like highlights or, or stuff that you uh, what make what makes this work? If other teachers were to do something like this. Uh, I don't know. I, I mean, the fact that both me and Paul are pretty awesome guys, I mean, that, uh, that <laughs> sure. helps. Uh, uh, but I mean, uh, much of it has to do with awareness of, uh, uh, has, uh, much of it has to, do, has to do with being aware of, of how easy it actually is to uh, how easily it actually is to set up to set up these set up these type set up these types of international partnerships. Now, uh, the collaboration tools that our students worked with through this was Facebook, Google Docs, 
Google Hangouts and Skype, right? All of these are free tools that tools that most of our students either are familiar with or aren't all that complicated or complicated to learn and they're free. Uh, and none of our students have met each other in the flesh. Despite that, men, uh, many of these students formed really close, meaningful working relationships together. In some cases, possibly even stronger working relationships than has been the case in some other international projects that I've taken part taken, <laughs> taken part of, where students have actually also travelled. Uh, travel to meet each other other as well so that's one thing that I, that I that i find to be be really really interesting is the fact that even for schools with a very very limited budget for work international for doing international trips etc you can still do a lot of meaningful international collaboration yeah that's a very good point i think uh, how, how much of that how much of that do you think is uh, because of the subject matter that they discussed does uh, is does working with the video game uh, like enhance that collaboration sense of collaboration or i, I well, think that's oh sorry go ahead alex uh uh well uh Working with video games is in itself something that's novel, something that's exotic, uh, something that's exotic. And when something is exotic, regardless of of whether it's good or whether it's good or good or bad, that is something that in itself creates interest. And uh, my feeling, especially this feeling, is feeling especially the very first time we ran we ran this project together together together, Paul. I Paul I, together, Paul. I had a strong sense sense with with both our students and ourselves. They many of them had a feeling of. Yeah, I'm taking part in something, something new, something different, something that not mm -hmm. many others have had the opportunity to do before, mm -hmm. and uh, that created uh, that created a relationship both between me and my students, and probably between you and your students as well, uh, students as well, and maybe most importantly between our student groups in Norway and in Canada. I don't know mm -hmm. if you have the same uh, feelings oh, yeah. about that, Paul. Absolutely. And I think that, that, yeah, there was definitely a strong bond. And I think obviously there's some funny connections because they're both sort of northern countries with small populations that are very familiar with snow. Uh, so I think that despite our, our cultural differences, there was the, the kids had a lot in common. Uh, and then, of course, there was the novelty of, of developing this working group, this international working group around the game. And, and we were using it uh, at a time where Facebook was still something adolescents would do, use. I, I don't think here in North America that's, that's dropped off dramatically. And I think there's already these existing sort of protocols and, and, and um, uh, social ways of socially organizing themselves on Facebook that we benefited from as well. That there, there's a, they, they, they like to communicate in a social media platform that at the time was familiar to them and that they like to you know, share images and memes and all that type of stuff. So the fact that I think it's a combination of it being a video game, uh, the kids having at least some commonalities, and of course, uh, the fact that the Norwegian and speak English so well was very helpful. I don't know if it would have been successful if uh, we actually did not have a language in common, uh, obviously. Um, and and I think, yeah, in the end, it was really, really successful. And there was some really strong bonds that were made and some very successful projects. Mm. Yeah, that's great. So I want to circle back a little bit uh, for both of you to um, how you structured uh, the actual teaching of the games. So I know, Paul, um, you, you have uh, an, kind of an excellent run through on your blog, ludiclearning.org, where you walk through the whole process of setting up the different parts of the unit and step by step how you took them through 
you know, kind of quote unquote learning a game um, and you know and studying a game like a text. Um, you know, and to be frankly honest, I think one of the reasons why it had such a hit and and kind of got a, a lot of attention among teachers is it really was a great platform of bringing a text into class and studying it like like a text. It certainly influenced you know kind of how I both taught Gone Home itself but also worked on you know my Her Story unit and, and others. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about how you kind of uh, organized uh, the day-to-day -day with the students. Uh, okay, so, so essentially one of the challenges I had uh, early on in designing this unit was, um, so if they're allowed to run around the house and do whatever they want, how do I get them to think about what they're doing? How do I organize structured assessment around that? So what I did is I, I created a system where they each were focusing on a particular theme of interest to them. And I sort of distilled six themes. For example, there was uh, music in the way of the riot girl. Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a late 90s or mid 90s musical movement from the Northwest, uh, which is a kind of a punk feminist movement called Riot Girl, which plays into the game. So they could track the appearance of, of, of Riot Girl music if they were interested in that. Uh, or you could choose to follow certain groups of characters or looking at, you know, the story takes place in 1995. So to, to kind of become an archaeologist and, and, and find these items that were, you know, around in 1995 that we don't see anymore and kind of create kind of a historical uh, view of things. So each of them chose a theme that interested them. And while they went through the game, they picked up and took notes on the theme and took screenshots. Screenshots was a big part of this because video games are a visual medium and and uh, and you can't annotate a video game. So by taking screenshots uh, to, to either that, that focus on important bits of information that you don't want to lose or you want to remember. Um, and so as they played, they collected notes and screenshots and all of these things. And their final projects tended to tie these together. So in my original uh, version of it, they all put on presentations according to their theme. So all the people who chose the music theme uh, gathered together, put together a presentation and shared it with the rest of the class. And the advantage there was that it, it's leveraging the fact that it's a visual medium, they're learning presentation skills, and they're uh, they're going into depth into a particular topic and sharing that with their classmates uh, who may have missed certain aspects uh, of the game related to that topic. And they, it deepens their understanding uh, of the game. As Alex and I move into collaborating, we, we kind of widened the offering of final projects to include, you know, uh, machinimas and videos and podcasts and, and a whole range of creative uh, ways that you could respond to the text. You also have them review the game as well. That's right. Sorry, I forgot about that. So one one thing that you know I thought was meaningful was that that reviews have become a very big part of the the kind of media landscape. Whenever we buy anything or want to do something, there there are tons of reviews. Some of them are real, some of them are not. Uh, that 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 we look at. And, and I feel that for, you know, for students to think about reviews, both writing them and reading them is really an important skill in this day and age. Um, and a lot of them read, you know, professional game reviews and informal ones. So I had them write uh, a review for Gone Home. And, and instead of just handing it in to me, I asked that they post it on websites where people post reviews. And that way their work entered the real world. Um, and I felt that the quality of their work uh, was, was pretty high, not because they, you know, they wanted an A on this review but because they knew that the eyes of the internet would be on their work and therefore held them to a high standard. And, and they took extra time to really kind of carefully craft these reviews because they would be out for public consumption. Yeah, this, it, it, even outside of, of, of games and learning, anything that adds 
a context from without the classroom is, I, I think, always energetically um, embraced by the students because um, they quickly get tired of, of the cloister of, of the classroom, um, as, a, as I like to call it. Um, yeah, and, and reviews are, are per, you know, persuasive writing. I remember um, having a conversation with the former reviews editor at Polygon, and, and he said his uh, structure for their reviews was the five-part thesis-based essay. So um, there, there's certainly plenty, uh, you know, kind of of uh, curricular connection there. Which and, means, and oh, go on. Sorry, just very quickly, and, and such a great point, John, because one thing that I found was obviously when you write a formal analytical essay in literature, you're constrained because you have to maintain the third, the third person voice and you have to abide by a certain vocabulary. And this is a very unfamiliar form for adolescents. And sometimes the critical thinking gets lost because they're so in the weeds with all those technical requirements that they have to fulfill for this very demanding form. And what I found when they wrote reviews was that they applied absolutely the same critical apparatus that they would in an essay, but they were released to write it in a, in a voice that was very familiar for them and it was very empowering for them. So in many ways, I felt that it was a more successful way for them to, thi to, to think critically and organize their thoughts than an essay because they felt more empowered in that form. Yeah, absolutely. I, one of the things I, I like about using reviews um, and the different ways I've done it with uh, game-based units is it forces them to really, maybe for the first time in class, think about the audience that they're writing to. Mm -hmm. And that's such a crucial element, um, speaking as an English teacher, that can get kind of lost. You're right, in that kind of dry, abstract, third person, you know, essay voice, which is kind of going to, you know, nowhere in particular, um, other than the teacher, which shocker they don't really care about all that often um so yeah that, that's that's a fantastic point so my question now is, as, as we begin to wrap up here is okay this is all great we've probably got teachers um and parents and and, and all kinds of people listening to this saying this is fantastic but i can't do it it's not it's not going to be accepted you know um, by my administration by my parents you know maybe even by the students so what was the process of getting the buy-in from the constituencies to, to kind of get this the um, official and unofficial support uh, to make it a successful unit? I uh, Maybe we're just really fortunate that we, uh, or uh, now I'm speaking for myself, but I, but myself, I think this goes for Paul as well, but you can correct me if I'm, uh, correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong. I at least work in a school where my administration is uh, super duper supportive of uh, doing anything differently basically so so for throughout the whole whole the, the whole process of both planning this unit and running this unit and running it again uh, running it again running it again later on even those times where ran into difficulties or things didn't pan out exactly as exactly as we planned i've had the support of my administration uh the entire time so i mean uh my uh, uh what i would urge more uh, now uh, uh, now now I think that my appeal should go uh, primarily to those school administrators or school boards or or whoever it is that might hold back teachers uh, creativity and initiative uh, when a teacher approaches with an idea like this let them give a crack at it 
Yeah, and um, actually, before before I I'll give my comment, Paul, yeah, why don't you respond? Yeah, I'm a hundred percent with Alex on this one. I've been really lucky. I have an incredibly supportive administration, and and I think there's enough about my course that meets all the benchmarks of a traditional English class that to slip in, you know, a month or three week game unit that actually has a great deal of valid output and is validated by the students. I mean, when you teach seventeen and eighteen year olds and they see the value in what you do and they report back to their parents, the parents listen to their kids. So so in, in this particular case, I've never had any kind of resistance from any parent and certainly have the full support of my administration. So I feel really, really lucky about that. Yeah. And in, in my experience, it's, it's often the other teachers in the building and, and the parents who, who when they come up to me and they say, you know, you know, my son or daughter cannot stop talking about what you guys are doing in English class and, and, he's, and he's working on it all the time. To me, that that's one of the, the greatest uh, signs uh, of success for uh, this type of teaching. Um, is is it, it's truly engaging and exciting. Um, and for those for those in the audience, you know, whether you're a teacher or an administrator, and you're thinking, but what about curriculum? What about Common Core? You know, um, this was a loaded question, so I already had the answers ready to go uh, on my end. But if you, if, if you look at, if you're an English teacher, you know, and you look at the national council of teachers of English, their 21st century literacies, the very first one is develop proficiency and fluency with the tools of technology. Um, you know, and then manage, analyze and s synthesize multiple streams of simultaneous information, critique, create, analyze, and evaluate multimedia texts. So this isn't, this, this isn't radical, you know, using games like this is not radical, um, you know, by the organizations that, that we're already basing ourselves uh, around, you know, they will be open to this. If, if you kind of go to chapter and verse and say, you know, this is, this is what I'm, uh, I'm trying to do. Um, so, you know, I would encourage, uh, like Alexander said, you know, if you have a teacher that comes to you, if you're going to go have a conversation with an administrator, if you go to the standards that you're probably already uh, bound to, um, I don't think you're, you'll, you'll find that they're as hostile as, as you might think, because um, they're, they're all about media and, and critiquing it in different ways. Exactly. And a lot of the standards are based around your responses, your written responses. So even something like writing a review of a game would actually meet many of the traditional Common Core ELA standards. Yeah, absolutely. So it, it's definitely not uh, uh, you know, radical at all. So, guys, it's been great having you uh, on our inaugural episode. Uh, this is, you know, one of the most exciting things that um, kind of got me into the world of, of game-based learning. So it was really great to have both of you on. Uh, you guys are doing, you know, great work out there in the GBL world. And I can't think of, uh, you know, better ambassadors than you two. Uh, so thank you very much uh, for being on the show. Uh, thank you, John, and, and I congratulate you and Tobias for getting this project off the ground. It's super exciting. It's nice to be, yeah, it's cool to have, uh, to, to get the ball rolling, so to speak. Yeah, uh, and I can just echo Paul's sentiment as well. Awesome that you wanted to have us as, have us as your first guest. And I'm uh, really, really exciting, uh, really, really excited to, uh, really, really excited to subscribe and listen to all of the other podcasts that you will be recording in the near future. Yeah, awesome. We will definitely be getting it out there. All right, so that is the end. Boom, wrap.